too. Peddled soap from house to house, shoved lumber on the docks, read all the books I could find, wrote letters back to country newspapers and became a reporter, next got a job as traveling salesman, taught in a district school, read Emerson, Carlyle and Macaulay, worked in a soap factory, read Shakespeare and committed most of Hamlet to memory with an eye on the stage, became manager of the soap factory, then partner, evolved an idea for the concern and put it on the track of making millions knew it was going to make millions did not want them, sold out my interest for $75,000 and went to Harvard College, tramped through Europe, wrote for sundry newspapers, and, two books couldn't find a publisher, taught night school in Buffalo, tramped through Europe some more and met William Morris caught it, came back to East Aurora and started Chautauqua Circles, studied Greek and Latin with a local clergyman, raised trotting horses, wrote little journeys to the homes of good men and great. So that is how I got my education, such as it is. I am a graduate of the University of Hard Knocks, and I've taken several postgraduate courses. I have worked at five different trades enough to be familiar with the tools. In 1899, Tufts College bestowed on me the degree of Master of Arts, but since I did not earn the degree, it really does not count. I have never been sick a day, never lost a meal through disinclination to eat, never consulted a doctor, never used tobacco or intoxicants. My work has never been regulated by the eight-hour clause. Horses have been my only extravagance, and I ride horseback daily now, a horse that I broke myself that has never been saddled by another, and that has never been harnessed. My best friends have been working men, homely women and children. My father and mother are members of my household, and they work in the shop when they are so inclined. My mother's business now is mostly to care for the flowers, and my father we call physician to the Roycrofters, as he gives free advice and attendance to all who desire his services. Needless to say, his medicine is mostly a matter of the mind. Unfortunately for him, we do not enjoy poor health, so there is very seldom anyone sick to be cured. Fresh air is free, and outdoor exercise is not discouraged. The Roycroft shop and belongings represent an investment of about $300,000. We have no liabilities, making it a strict business policy to sign no notes or other instruments of debt that may in the future prove inopportune and tend to disturb digestion. Fortune has favored us. First, the country has grown tired of soft platitude, silly truism and indisputed things said in such a solemn way. So when the Philistine stepped into the ring and voiced in no uncertain tones what its editor thought, thinking men and women stopped and listened, editors of magazines refused my manuscript because they said it was too plain, too blunt, sometimes indelicate it would give offense, subscribers would cancel, etc. To get my thoughts published I had to publish them myself and people bought for the very reason for which the editors said they would cancel. The readers wanted brevity and plain statement the editors said they didn't. The editors were wrong. They failed to properly diagnose a demand. I saw the demand and supplied it for a consideration. Next I believe the American public, a portion of it, at least, wanted a few good and beautiful books instead of a great many cheap books. The truth came to me in the early 90s. When John B. Alden and half a dozen other publishers of cheap books went to the wall, I read the R.G. Dunn & Company bulletin and I said, The publishers have mistaken their public we want better books, not cheaper. In 1892, I met William Morris, and after that I was sure I was right. Again I had gauged the public correctly the publishers were wrong, 
as wrong as the editors. There was a market for the best, and the problem was to supply it. At first I bound my books in paper covers and simple boards. Men wrote to me wanting fine bindings. I said, there is a market in America for the best cheap boards, covered with cloth, stamped by machinery in gaudy tinsel and gilt, are not enough. I discovered that nearly all the bookbinders were dead. I found 500 people in a book factory in Chicago binding books, but not a bookbinder among them. They simply fed the books into hoppers and shot them out of shoots, and said they were bound. Next the public wanted to know about this thing. What are you folks doing out there in that Buckwheat town? Since my 20th year I have had one eye on the histrionic stage. I could talk in public a bit, had made political speeches, given entertainments in crossroads schoolhouses, made temperance harangues, was always called upon to introduce the speaker of the evening, and several times had given readings from my own amusing works for the modest stipend of $10 and keep. I would have taken the lecture platform had it not been nailed down. In 1898, my friend Major Pond wanted to book me on a partnership deal at the Waldorf Astoria. I didn't want to speak there I had been saying unkind things in the Philistine about the Waldorf Astoria folks. But the Major went ahead and made arrangements. I expected to be mobbed, but Mr. Bolt, the manager of the hotel, had placed a suite of rooms at my disposal without money and without price. He treated me most cordially, never referred to the outrageous things I had said about his tavern, assured me that he enjoyed my writings, and told me of the pleasure he had in welcoming me. Thus did he heap hot cinders upon my occiput. The Astor Gallery seats 800 people. Major Pond had packed in 900 at one dollar each 300 were turned away. After the lecture the Major awaited me in the anteroom, fell on my neck and rained Pond's extract down my back, crying, Oh! Oh, oh, why didn't we charge them two dollars apiece? The next move was to make a tour of the principal cities under Major Pond's management. Neither of us lost money the Major surely did not. Last season I gave 81 lectures, with a net profit to myself of a little over $10,000. I spoke at Tremont Temple in Boston, to 2,200 people, at Carnegie Hall, New York, at Central Music Hall, Chicago. I spoke to all the house would hold, at Chautauqua. My audience was 5,000 people. It will be noted by the discerning that my lectures have been of double importance, in that they have given an income and at the same time advertised the Roycroft wares. The success of the Roycroft shop has not been brought about by any one scheme or plan. The business is really a combination of several ideas, any one of which would make a paying enterprise in itself. So it stands about thus, first the printing and publication of three magazines. Second, the printing of books it being well known that some of the largest publishers in America Scribner and Appleton, for instance have no printing plants, but have the work done for them. Third, the publication of books. Fourth, the artistic binding of books. Fifth, authorship. Since I began printing my own manuscript, there is quite an eager demand for my writing, so I do a little of class before various publishers and editors. Sixth, the lecture lyceum. Seventh, blacksmithing, carpenter work and basket weaving. These industries have sprung up under the Roycroft care as a necessity. Men and women in the village came to us and wanted work, and we simply gave them opportunity to do the things they could do best. We have found a market for all our wares, so no line of work has ever been a bill of expense. I want no better clothing, no better food, 
no more comforts and conveniences than my helpers and fellow workers have. I would be ashamed to monopolize a luxury to take a beautiful work of art, say a painting or a marble statue, and keep it for my own pleasure and for the select few I might invite to see my beautiful things. Art is for all beauty is for all. Harmony in all of its manifold forms should be like a sunset free to all who can drink it in. The Roycroft shop is for the Roycrofters, and each is limited only by his capacity to absorb. Art is the expression of man's joy in his work, and all the joy and love that you can weave into a fabric comes out again and belongs to the individual who has the soul to appreciate it. Art is beauty, and beauty is a gratification, a peace and a solace to every normal man and woman. Beautiful sounds, beautiful colors, beautiful proportions, beautiful thoughts how our souls hunger for them. Matter is only mind in an opaque condition, and all beauty is but a symbol of spirit. You cannot get joy from feeding things all day into a machine. You must let the man work with hand and brain. And then out of the joy of this marriage of hand and brain, beauty will be born. It tells of the desire for harmony, peace, beauty, wholeness, holiness. Art is the expression of man's joy in his work. When you read a beautiful poem that makes your heart throb with gladness and gratitude, you are simply partaking of the emotion that the author felt when he wrote it. To possess a piece of work that the workman made in joyous animation is a source of joy to the possessor, and this love of the work done by the marriage of hand and brain can never quite go out of fashion for we are men and women, and our hopes and aims and final destiny are at last one, where one enjoys, all enjoy, where one suffers, all suffer, say what you will of the coldness and selfishness of men, at the last we long for companionship and the fellowship of our kind, we are lost children. And when alone and the darkness gathers, we long for the close relationship of the brothers and sisters we knew in our childhood, and cry for the gentle arms that once rocked us to sleep. Men are homesick amid this sad, mad rush for wealth and place and power, the calm of the country invites, and we would fain do with less things, and go back to simplicity, and rest our tired heads in the lap of Mother Nature. Life is expression, life is a movement outward, an unfolding, a development to be tied down, pinned to a task that is repugnant, and to have the shrill voice of necessity whistling eternally in your ears, do this or starve, is to starve, for it starves the heart, the soul, and all the higher aspirations of your being pine away and die, at the Roycroft shop the workers are getting an education by doing things, work should be the spontaneous expression of a man's best impulses, we grow only through exercise, and every faculty that is exercised becomes strong, and those not used atrophy and die. Thus how necessary it is that we should exercise our highest and best. To develop the brain we have to exercise the body. Every muscle, every organ, has its corresponding convolution in the brain. To develop the mind, we must use the body. Manual training is essentially moral training, and physical work island at its best. Mental moral and spiritual and these are truths so great and yet so simple that until yesterday many wise men did not recognize them. At the Roycroft shop we are reaching out for an all-round development through work and right living, and we have found it a good expedient a wise business policy. Sweatshop methods can never succeed in producing beautiful things, and so the management of the Roycroft shop surrounds the workers with beauty, allows many liberties, encourages cheerfulness and tries to promote kind thoughts simply because it has been found that these things are transmuted into good, and come out again at the fingertips of the workers in beautiful results. So we have pictures, statuary, flowers, 
ferns, palms, birds, and a piano in every room. We have the best sanitary appliances that money can buy. We have bathrooms, shower baths, library, restrooms. Every week we have concerts, dances, lectures. Besides being a workshop, the Rycroft is a school. We are following out a dozen distinct lines of study, and every worker in the place is enrolled as a member of one or more classes. There are no fees to pupils, but each pupil purchases his own books the care of his books and belongings being considered a part of one's education. All the teachers are workers in the shop, and are volunteers, teaching without pay, beyond what each receives for his regular labor. The idea of teaching we have found is a great benefit to the teacher. The teacher gets most out of the lessons. Once a week there is a faculty meeting, when each teacher gives in a verbal report of his schoolwardship. It is responsibility that develops one, and to know that your pupils expect you to know is a great incentive to study. Then teaching demands that you shall give give yourself and he who gives most receives most. We deepen our impressions by recounting them, and he who teaches others teaches himself. I am never quite so proud as when someone addresses me as teacher. We try to find out what each person can do best, what he wants to do, and then we encourage him to put his best into it also to do something else besides his specialty. Finding rest in change, the thing that pays should be the expedient thing, and the expedient thing should be the proper and right thing. That which began with us as a matter of expediency is often referred to as a philanthropy. I do not like the word and wish to state here that the Rycroft is in no sense a charity I do not believe in giving any man something for nothing. You give a man a dollar and the man will think less of you because he thinks less of himself, but if you give him a chance to earn a dollar, he will think more of himself and more of you. The only way to help people is to give them a chance to help themselves. So the Rycroft idea is one of reciprocity you help me and I'll help you. We will not be here forever. Anyway, soon death the kind old nurse, will come and rock us all to sleep, and we had better help one another while we may, we are going the same way let's go hand in hand, contents publishers preface the autobiographical XI George Eliot 47 Thomas Carlyle 65 John Ruskin 85 William E. Gladstone 101 Jules Meters W. Turner 121 Jonathan Swift 141 Walt Whitman 161 Victor Hugo 183 William Wordsworth 209 William M. Thackeray 227 Charles Dickens 245 Oliver Goldsmith 271 William Shakespeare 299 Thomas A. Edison 319 George Eliot, may I reach that purest heaven, be to other souls the cup of strength in some great agony, enkindle generous ardor, feed pure love, beget the smiles that have no cruelty be the good presence of a good diffused, and in diffusion ever more intense, so shall I join the choir invisible whose music is the gladness of the world, Warwickshire gave to the world William Shakespeare, it also gave Mary Ann Evans, No one will question that Shakespeare's is the greatest name in English literature, and among writers living or dead, in England or out of it, no woman has ever shown us power equal to that of George Eliot, in the subtle clairvoyance which divines the inmost play of passions, the experience that shows human capacity for contradiction, and the indulgence that is merciful because it understands, Shakespeare lived 300 years ago, according to the records, his father, in 1563, owned a certain house in Henley Street, Stratford-on-Avon, hence we infer that William Shakespeare was born there, and in all our knowledge of Shakespeare's early life or later we prefix the words, 
Hence we infer, that the man knew all the sciences of his day, and had such a knowledge of each of the learned professions that all have claimed him as their own. We realize, he evidently was acquainted with five different languages, and the range of his intellect was worldwide, but where did he get this vast erudition? We do not know, and we excuse ourselves by saying that he lived 300 years ago. George Eliot lived yesterday, and we know no more about her youthful days than we do of that other child of Warwickshire. One biographer tells us that she was born in 1819, another in 1820, and neither state the day, whereas a recent writer in the Paul Mall budget graciously bestows on us the useful information that William Shakespeare was born on the 21st day of April, 1563, at 15 minutes of two on a stormy morning. Concise statements of facts are always valuable, but we have none such concerning the early life of George Eliot. There is even a shadow over her parentage, for no less an authority than the American Cyclopedia Annual, for 1880, boldly proclaims that she was not a foundling and, moreover, that she was not adopted by a rich retired clergyman who gave her a splendid schooling. Then the writer dives into obscurity but presently reappears and adds that he does not know where she got her education, for all of which we are very grateful. Shakespeare left five signatures, each written in a different way, and now there is a goodly crew who spell it, Bacon, and likewise we do not know whether it is Marianne Evans, Marianne Evans or Marianne Evans, for she herself is said to have used each form at various times. William Winter Gentle Critic, Poet, Scholar tells us that the sonnets show a dark spot in Shakespeare's moral record, and if I remember rightly, similar things have been hinted at in sewing circles concerning George Eliot. Then they each found the dew and sunshine in London that caused the flowers of genius to blossom. The early productions of both were published anonymously, and lastly they both knew how to transmute thought into gold, for they died rich. Lady Godiva rode through the streets of Coventry. But I walked walked all the way from Stratford, by way of Warwick call it Warwick, please and Kenilworth Castle. I stopped overnight at that quaint and curious little inn just across from the castle entrance. The good landlady gave me the same apartment that was occupied by Sir Walter Scott when he came here and wrote the first chapter of Kenilworth. The little room had pretty, white chintz curtains tied with blue ribbon, and similar stuff draped the mirror. The bed was a big canopy affair I had to stand on a chair in order to dive off into its feathery depths everything was very neat and clean, and the dainty linen had a sweet smell of lavender. I took one parting look out through the open window at the ivy mantled towers of the old castle, which were all sprinkled with silver by the rising moon, and then I fell into gentlest sleep. I dreamed of playing, I spy, through Kenilworth Castle with Shakespeare, Walter Scott. Mary Ann Evans and a youth I used to know in boyhood by the name of Bill Hersey. We chased each other across the drawbridge, through the portcullis, down the slippery stones into the dungeon keep, around the moat, and up the stone steps to the topmost turret of the towers. Finally Shakespeare was it, but he got mad and refused to play. Walter Scott said it was no fair, and Bill Hersey thrust out the knuckle of one middle finger in a very threatening way and offered to do the boy from Stratford. Then Mary Ann rushed in to still the tempest. There's no telling what would have happened had not the landlady just then rapped at my door and asked if I had called. I awoke with a start and with the guilty feeling that I had been shouting in my sleep. I saw it was morning. Know that island yes, my shaving water, please. 
After breakfast the landlady's boy offered for five shillings to take me in his donkey cart to the birthplace of George Eliot. He explained that the house was just seven miles north, but Balam's express is always slow. So I concluded to walk. At Coventry a cab owner proposed to show me the house, which he declared was near Kenilworth, for twelve shillings. The advantages of seeing Kenilworth at the same time were dwelt upon at great length by cabby, but I hearkened not to the voice of the siren. I got a good lunch at the hotel, and asked the innkeeper if he could tell me where George Eliot was born. He did not know, but said he could show me a house around the corner where a family of Eliots lived. Then I walked on to Nuneaton. A charming walk it was, past quaint old houses, some with straw thatch roofs, others tile roses clambering over the doors and flowering hedgerows white with hawthorn flowers. Occasionally, I met a farmer's cart drawn by one of those great, fat, gentle shire horses that George Eliot has described so well. All spoke of peace and plenty, quiet and rest, the green fields and the flowers, the lark song and the sunshine, the dipping willows by the stream and the arch of the old stone bridges I approached the village all these I had seen and known and felt before from, mill on the floss. I found the house where they say the novelist was born, a plain, whitewashed, stone structure, built two hundred years ago, two stories, the upper chambers low, with gable windows, a little garden at the side bright with flowers, where sweet marjoram vied with onions and beets, all spoke of humble thrift and homely cares, in front was a great chestnut tree, and in the roadway near were two ancient elms where saucy crows were building a nest. Here, after her mother died, Mary Ann Evans was housekeeper, little more than a child tall, timid, and far from strong she cooked and scrubbed and washed, and was herself the mother to brothers and sisters. Her father was a carpenter by trade and agent for a rich landowner. He was a stern man orderly, earnest, industrious, studious. On rides about the country he would take the tall, hollow-eyed girl with him, and at such times he would talk to her of the great outside world where wondrous things were done. The child toiled hard, but found time to read and question and there is always time to think. Soon she had outgrown some of her good father's beliefs, and this grieved him greatly, so much, indeed, that her extra-loving attention to his needs, in a hope to neutralize his displeasure, only irritated him the more, and if there is soft, Subdued sadness in much of George Eliot's writing we can guess the reason. The onward and upward march ever means sad separation. When Mary Ann was blossoming into a womanhood her father moved over near Coventry, and here the ambitious girl first found companionship in her intellectual desires. Here she met men and women, older than herself, who were animated, earnest thinkers. They read and then they discussed, and then they spoke the things that they felt were true. Those eight years at Coventry transformed the awkward country girl into a woman of intellect and purpose. She knew somewhat of all sciences, all philosophies, and she had become a proficient scholar in German and French. How did she acquire this knowledge? How is any education acquired if not through effort prompted by desire? She had already translated Strauss's Life of Jesus in a manner that was acceptable to the author. When Ralph Waldo Emerson came to Coventry to lecture, he was entertained at the same house where Miss Evans was stopping. Her brilliant conversation pleased him, and when she questioned the wisdom of a certain passage in one of his essays the gentle philosopher turned, smiled, and said that he had not seen it in that light before, perhaps she was right. What is your favorite book? asked Emerson. Rousseau's Confessions. 
answered Mary instantly. It was Emerson's favorite, too, but such honesty from a young woman. It was queer. Mr. Emerson never forgot Miss Evans of Coventry, and ten years after, when a zealous reviewer proclaimed her the greatest novelist in England, the Sage of Concord said something that sounded like, I told you so. Miss Evans had made visits to London from time to time with her Coventry friends, when 28 years old. After one such visit to London, she came back to the country tired and weary, and wrote this most womanly wish, My only ardent desire is to find some feminine task to discharge, some possibility of devoting myself to someone and making that one purely and calmly happy. But now her father was dead and her income was very scanty. She did translating, and tried the magazines with articles that generally came back respectfully declined. Then an author came as sub-editor of the Westminster Review. It was steady work and plenty of it, and this was what she desired. She went to London and lived in the household of her employer, Mr. Chapman. Here she had the opportunity of meeting many brilliant people, Carlyle and his, Jeannie Welsh, the Martinus, Grote, Mr. and Mrs. Mill, Huxley, Matsina, Louis Blanc. Besides these were two young men who must not be left out when we sum up the influences that evolved this woman's genius. She was attracted to Herbert Spencer at once. He was about her age, and their admiration for each other was mutual. Miss Evans, writing to a friend in 1852, says, Spencer is kind, he is delightful, and I always feel better after being with him, and we have agreed together that there is no reason why we should not see each other as often as we wish, and then later she again writes, the bright side of my life, after the affection for my old friends, is the new and delightful friendship which I have found in Herbert Spencer, we see each other every day, and in everything we enjoy delightful comradeship. If it were not for him my life would be singularly arid. But about this time another man appeared on the scene. And were it not for this other man, who was introduced to Miss Evans by Spencer, the author of Synthetic Philosophy might not now be spoken of in the biographical dictionaries as having been wedded to science. It was not love at first sight. For George Henry Lewis made a decidedly unfavorable impression on Miss Evans at their first meeting. He was small. His features were insignificant. He had whiskers like an anarchist and a mouthful of crooked teeth. His personal habits were far from pleasant. It was this sort of thing, Dickens said, that caused his first wife to desert him and finally drove her into insanity. But Louis had a brilliant mind. He was a linguist, a scientist, a novelist, a poet and a wit. He had written biography, philosophy and a play. He had been a journalist, a lecturer and even an actor. Thackeray declared that if he should see Louis perched on a white elephant in Piccadilly he should not be in the least surprised. After having met Miss Evans several times, Mr. Louis saw the calm depths of her mind and he asked her to correct proofs for him. She did so and discovered that there was merit in his work. She corrected more proofs. And when a woman begins to assist a man the danger line is being approached. Close observers noted that a change was coming over the Bohemian Louis. He had his whiskers trimmed his hair was combed, and the bright yellow necktie had been discarded for a clean one of modest brown, and, sometimes, his boots were blacked. In July, 1854, Mr. Chapman received a letter from his sub-editor resigning her position, and Miss Evans notified some of her closest friends that he after she wished to be considered the wife of Mr. Lewis. She was then in her 36th year. The couple disappeared, having gone to Germany. 
Many people were shocked. Some said, we knew it all the time. And when Herbert Spencer was informed of the fact he exclaimed, goodness me, and said nothing. After six months spent at Weimar and other literary centers, Mr. and Mrs. Lewis returned to England and began housekeeping at Richmond. Anyone who views their old quarters there will see how very plainly and economically they were forced to live. But they worked hard, and at this time the future novelist's desire seemed only to assist her husband, that she developed the manly side of his nature none can deny. They were very happy, these two, as they wrote, and copied, and studied, and toiled. Three years passed, and Mrs. Lewis wrote to a friend, I am very happy, happy with the greatest happiness that life can give the complete sympathy and affection of a man whose mind stimulates mine and keeps up in me a wholesome activity. Mr. Lewis knew the greatness of his helpmate. She herself did not. He urged her to write a story. She hesitated, and at last attempted it. They read the first chapter together and cried over it. Then she wrote more and always read her husband the chapters as they were turned off. He corrected, encouraged, and found a publisher. But why should I tell about it here? It's all in the Britannica how the gentle beauty and sympathetic insight of her word touched the hearts of great and lowly alike and of how riches began flowing in upon her. For one book she received $40,000, and her income after fortune smiled upon her was never less than $10,000 a year. Louise was her secretary, her protector, her slave and her inspiration. He kept at bay the public that would steal her time, and put out of her reach, at her request, all reviews, good or bad, and shielded her from the interviewer, the curiosity seeker and the greedy financier, the reason why she at first wrote under a nom de plume is plain, to the great, wallowing world she was neither Miss Evans nor Mrs. Lewis, so she dropped both names as far as title pages were concerned and used a man's name instead hoping better to elude the pack, when Adam Beebe came out, a resident of Nuneaton purchased a copy and at once discovered local earmarks, the scenes described, the flowers, the stone walls, the bridges, the barns, the people all was Nuneaton, who wrote it, no one knew, but it was surely someone in Nuneaton, so they picked out a Mr. Liggins, a solemn-faced preacher, who was always about to do something great, and they said, Liggins, soon all London said, Liggins, as for Liggins, he looked wise and smiled knowingly, then articles began to appear in the periodicals purporting to have been written by the author of, Adam Bede, a book came out called, Adam Bede, Junior, and to protect her publisher, the public and herself, George Eliot had to reveal her identity. Many men have written good books and never tasted fame, but few, like Liggins of Nuneaton, have become famous by doing nothing. It only proves that some things can be done as well as others. This breed of men has long dwelt in Warwickshire, Shakespeare had them in mind when he wrote. There be men who do a willful stillness and retain with purpose to be dressed in an opinion of wisdom. Gravity and profound conceit. Lord Acton in an able article in the 19th century makes this statement. George Eliot paid high for happiness with Louise. She forfeited freedom of speech. The first place among English women. And a tomb in Westminster Abbey. B.O.